been. What beautiful weather we had this weekend. Um, we all was chatting a little bit in between, uh, in between our, our starting. And uh, we need weekends like this, this time of year, right? In the midst of all the rain and like then probably like in a couple weeks like some snow. I'm not counting that out, right? Like I'm convinced still it's going to snow again. Um, but we need weekends where it's, you know, 80 degrees outside and sunny so that we can remain sane. Um, during this time of the year. So uh, anyway, I hope everybody had an awesome uh, an awesome weekend. Um, this morning, we're back in Mark, right? Um, I was talking to a few guys this past week and um, was kind of considering the breaks that we've taken as we've studied through Mark's gospel. We had uh, four weeks, uh, a four-week break um, in which uh, we uh, went through the season of Advent, right? And then we had a two-week break uh, coming into uh, the first of the year, right, in which we come in on the gospel marriage from Donnie Jones. And so we are, uh, man, we're continuing on, and we've been in March for a long time. We've got a short little break that will come up uh, at Easter, um, a little a, a little one week, and then we'll settle in and we'll finish out the gospel of Mark. But this morning we're in Mark chapter 13. We're starting chapter 13 this morning. Um, and as we kind of have been practicing over the past few weeks, which I've been a huge fan of this, I hope that this has proven beneficial for you, um, is that we're uh, kind of bringing up individuals from the fellowship to participate in this portion of service by reading our passage. Um, you guys get to hear me for anywhere from, uh, you know, like 38 to 50 minutes on Sunday, right? And so breaking up uh, what I have to say um, to hear other voices, I think is is really beneficial and helpful. And so um, this morning, as we start Mark chapter 13, Mac Smith is going to come, um, and he's going to read for us. Um, if you don't know Mac, you've seen Mac, at least just a few minutes ago, if you noticed him back in the back um, going to town on the box, right? Um, but grateful for Mac and for his um, his commitment to this fellowship and for um, the gospel's work in his life. And so, Mac, thanks for coming to read for us uh, this morning. Um, so would you, uh, would you read for us beginning in, in chapter 13, verse 1 through verse 13? All right, here we go. Then as he went up to the temp- of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus, and Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Uh, and you will be hated 
by all for my name's sake, but he who endures the end shall be saved. Amen. Challenging, right? Challenging passage this morning. So um, let's pray together and ask that the Lord might um, enlighten our hearts and our minds um, so that we can better understand what we see here as we begin Mark chapter 13 and then um, seek to apply it appropriately in our lives. Lord, thanks for your grace um, and for your word, the preservation of it, that we have it uh, in a language that we're able to to read. And um, by your grace and the work of the Spirit in our lives, understand. Um, we pray that uh, in our time together this morning that you, um, as in, in all things, uh, pertaining to this church and our lives and this world might receive much glory and honor because that's what you deserve. And so uh, we love you and we're grateful, Father, uh, for, for your great grace. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's, uh, let's take a, a little bit of a step back and let's consider what we've seen over the past few weeks. We were in Mark chapter 12 for some time and there was a lot there, even leading into what we saw in Mark 12 as we continue through this final week of the life of Jesus. In recent weeks, um, we have seen the triumphal entry of Jesus along with his followers into Jerusalem for the Passover, where he proceeded to prophesy of the destruction of the temple. He cursed the fig tree, he cleansed the temple, and he displayed on numerous occasions his superiority over the religious establishment by way of dialogue and debate. And last week, if we, if we reflect back on what we saw as we concluded our time in chapter 12, we saw the elevation of the expectation for the Messiah. Right? That there was this certain expectation that the people possessed in terms of the coming of the Messiah, who he would be and what he would accomplish, right? And so we see Jesus, by way of concluding chapter 12, elevating the expectation of the people, as well as the widow. The the widow who, who offered in faith all that she had to the Lord. A sacrifice that if we remember our time together last week, we said that Christ is able to understand as the one who is most familiar with sacrifice. Well, in what ways? Well, we see Christ uh, in, in just coming days laying aside his life, right? Preceded only by the amazement that we understand as we see him lay aside the intimacy of the fellowship that he enjoyed within the Godhead. In order to enter into his creation and to redeem it. Right? Not by overthrowing Rome or any occupying powers, but by overthrowing death by way of his crucifixion and his resurrection. So we saw last week Jesus exposing the wickedness of the religious leaders through their exploitation of those affected by the fall. And we talked about last week, if you remember this idea that there are such things as widows because we live in a fallen world, right? That death is not a part of God's design in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, but it is something that is ushered in with the fall. And we see them exploiting those who had been affected by the fall for their own selfish benefit. But there's good news, right? There's good news in that at the very same time we are reminded and we were reminded of the hope for forgiveness 
through the sacrifice of our sovereign Lord and King. Well, what do you mean? Well, here's what we mean. That the gospel provides hope. Right? The gospel provides hope for those who have leveraged their influence for their own self-interest. Through the unfathomable generosity of Christ. Right? That, that there is grace and there is hope and there is transformation that is possible. And so as we finished last week and when we considered all that we saw there, man, just as I reflected again and again on this final portion of Mark chapter 12, I was confronted right, with my own self-centeredness and my own selfishness that is so prone to, to rear its ugly head. And yet the gospel calls us back, right? And we see this wonderful display of, of hope for forgiveness and reconciliation through Christ because of his extreme generosity. We, we see that the elevation of the Son makes possible the elevation of the humble and the poor in spirit. And so that's the past few weeks. And then we transition into Mark chapter 13, and we see what is known as the Olivet Discourse, which is essentially this. It's, it's essentially Jesus' farewell prophecy. We see this morning this passage that has been described as one of the most difficult texts in the New Testament. For a number of reasons, due to its prophetic language and, and allusions to both the Old Testament as well as Jewish apocalyptic literature. And so as a result, we are required this morning, me and, and you, all of us together corporately and individually, to approach this passage in humility. Right? We're, we're, we're encouraged and we are required this morning to approach Mark chapter 13 verses 1 through 13 in, in humility, admitting that we don't know everything. But we have exactly what we need. Right? This morning's observations and, and, and a main idea are as follows. 30,000 feet, what are we going to see as we observe Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 13? We see Christ's people will follow their king into difficulty, confident in him to see us through. Let me say that one more time, that Christ's people, right? Christ's people, those who have been redeemed from sin by grace through faith in Christ will follow their king into difficulty, confident all the while that he will be faithful to see us through. And we see from Jesus this morning this encouragement to his followers and the church to be steadfast and to be faithful in the face of difficulty and trial. This is an exhortation. That the disciples of Jesus need, regardless of time and space. What do you mean by that? Here's what I mean. I mean that it is going to prove to be most beneficial for those who are present with Jesus as they hear him speak for the first time these words. 
And it's beneficial for God's people gathered this morning in this room, encouraged in and toward the pilgrim life, a life of difficulty as we see displayed by way of this passage. One thing that is so incredibly interesting about the gospel of Mark is where Mark leaves us at the end. At the very end, if you look at Mark chapter 16, we see Jesus appearing to his disciples. And we see from the disciples a continued concern in light of what they are to experience as God's people. And so we begin this morning by 30,000 feet observing this, this particular point that our king makes it possible for his people to follow him into difficulty, confident that he will see us through. Four observations that I want us to make from this morning's passage. And again, as you guys know, man, I have such an incredibly bad habit of doing this. And I recognize it, and I repent and ask for your forgiveness of making super complex points. Okay, But we're going to spend some time talking through these things this morning. So if you take notes, which I would encourage you always to do, write these things down. These are the observations that we're going to make from these first 13 verses. Number one, we see Christ's prophetic word. And a reorientation towards true beauty. We see Christ's prophetic word. He's going to speak of events that are to take place in the relatively near future. As well as a reorientation towards true beauty. I feel like no joke that we could talk all morning about verses 1 through 4. Because it is, it is incredible when we step back and we consider what Jesus is, is doing through these first four verses. The second thing that we will observe is Christ's call to sound doctrine. John Piper, a number of years ago, wrote a really famous, wonderful book called Doctrine Matters. It's super short. Um, and we see the roots, the foundation for that statement and title emphasized here in Mark chapter 13. Sound doctrine. Doctrine doctrine matters. The third observation is this. We see Christ's assurance of security and his commitment to mission. How providential, right, that this morning we participate in global hymn sing along with the church universal around the world for the purpose of emphasizing mission. And this morning we find ourselves in Mark chapter 13 in which Christ's commitment to mission is clear. The last thing that we'll see is this, that Christ is the source of our endurance and our salvation. This is a challenging text, and we're going to be confronted through this passage with a number of realities concerning the difficulty that God's people are sure to experience in this life. Newsflash, right? Bottom line, red letters, life is challenging. Life is difficult, and everybody's having a hard time. And what we see from this passage is that the world only becomes more and more and more chaotic. And so how do we, as a hope-filled people, a pilgrim people, who are, who are living in this world while knowing that we are not of this world, we have been plucked from it, and our destiny is enthroned, right, on high, where we are to go and what we are to enjoy in a world, in a body, 
absent of sin and brokenness. Now, how do we live in this world in light of these realizations and these truths? That's something that we're going to talk about this morning. And so let's begin by looking to Christ's prophetic word and a reorientation towards true beauty. What, that which is truly beautiful. As Jesus and his disciples begin in in verse 1 of chapter 13, making their way toward the Mount of Olives, geographically they would have found themselves elevated above the city of Jerusalem with a great view of the temple and all of its beauty. What are some things that we can know, that we can observe about the temple, since we are not in this scene observing that which they are, which leads to the response that we see in the first two verses? Well, the the temple is constructed on this massive foundation. It has an incredible footprint with high gates and shimmering gold. And as a result, there is no doubt that this was indeed a breathtaking sight. Let's put ourselves into the scene for just a moment and try to imagine all that the disciples are observing as they make their way out of the city and begin climbing up this, this mountain. The sight that they observe is one that led one of the disciples to say, perhaps in an attempt, given the chaos of the past few days, to lift the spirits of Jesus. Look, teacher, verse 1, chapter 13, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. Essentially this, this is what he's saying, okay? Look at the beauty of the temple and all that surrounds it. So what can, we, what can we say in light of what we see him say here? Well, we can say this, that, that the, the disciple's statement is undoubtedly undeniable. Right? Never mind the fact that at this very moment, the glory of the Lord, the Son of God, Christ Jesus, the Messiah, come to rescue his people and reign as eternal king, is departing the temple In a scene very familiar to one that we can find in the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 23, in which the glory of the Lord departs. Here we see Christ making his way toward the mount, having left the temple for the final time. Jesus here, he he takes advantage of the opportunity. And he, he takes advantage of the opportunity presented to him to prophesy to his disciples towards a future event in which the temple would be gutted and burned to the ground. While implicitly encouraging a much needed shift in terms of understanding and observing that which is beautiful in this world. It would make sense to them eventually, but right now, they're not fully grasping all that Jesus is going to have to say in the coming verses. And so let's ask ourselves a question in light of verses 1 and as we begin to transition into verse 2. Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. Here's a question that we can ask ourselves as we work through this portion 
of Scripture. How does the Bible inform our understanding of that which is preeminent in terms of its beauty in the eyes of God? That's a complex statement, and so let me say that again. How does the Bible... How does the Bible inform our understanding of that which is preeminent, that which is first in terms of its beauty in the eyes of God? Consider what we see in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 as the Lord goes about this, this incredible creation, this creative right, creation that he says again and again and again is, is good. Beautiful, right? Untainted creation. Scenes of of splendor that you and I are almost incapable of fully grasping and understanding. How does the Bible inform our understanding of that which is preeminent in terms of beauty in the eyes of the Lord? I love what Steve DeWitt, the author of a book entitled Eyes Wide Open, has to say about beauty. Because here's what Jesus is doing. The disciples are walking out of the city and they're looking back and they're observing. Observing the landscape below them. And they say, essentially, this is huge. This is beautiful. And there was no denying that. That which they were observing was indeed one of the most beautiful sights in terms of the temple and its construction and all of the elements that made that up. It was one of the most beautiful sights that one could imagine. And yet Jesus is going to, in just a moment... Point towards its destruction. And so what do we need to know in light of what Jesus has to say here about that which is truly beautiful? Well, we'll listen to what Steve DeWitt has to say again in his book, Eyes Wide Open. He says this, imagine the cross informing our understanding of that which is beautiful. Here's what he has to say. The cross, DeWitt says, gives finite human beings, that's you and me, right? A small taste of what it is like to be a member of the Trinity. In the moment of his sacrificial death, Jesus gives to us what he had given to the Father for all eternity. Everything. Right, which reminds us, we consider back to what we saw just last week. All of this fits together, right? All of this fits together. We remember the widow's offering and Christ's elevation of that as one who is capable of understanding sacrifice better than any other and encouraging his people towards this type of life. Jesus gives upon the cross everything. We see the total surrender of self. We haven't even got to the point yet, but man, how rich it is already. He goes on to say this, that the cross is love's highest human expression and beauty's ultimate source. Before a sunset or a mountain range or a painting or a song can be relished as beautiful. DeWitt says this, that our souls have to awaken to true beauty. And so what is it? Tell us already, what is truly beautiful? He says the cross is real beauty. 
The cross is real beauty, and everything else is reflection. Wow. The the sacrifice of our king sets the stage and serves as the gold standard in terms of what is beautiful, of what is truly beautiful. And regardless of what we enjoy in this creation, which is full of marvelous sights and sounds and tastes that we would say, this is beautiful last night. Courtney and I and our friends Andrew and Amber have started a Saturday tradition of eating some red meat together on Saturdays. Steak. And it is good, right? It's beautiful, the the tastes and the flavors that you're able to enjoy. But what we see is from a biblical worldview for the Christian, everything that is beautiful in terms of what we hear and taste and see and observe has to find its root, its home in the cross of Christ. That that's where it all begins, And it all goes back to and it all flows back to this moment in history and that everything else that we enjoy is a reflection of the beauty that we see displayed from Christ to his people and in an event that is pleasing to the Father. And it serves as the standard by which we understand what is really beautiful. So let's think again a little bit a little bit beyond red meat, right? About how this works itself out practically. Let's consider landscapes, right? Such as that which the disciples observe in verse 1. They are beautiful. Facebook yesterday was full of pictures, photos from from people, many of you who were out in creation taking in and observing observing its beauty. And so how does the cross inform the way that we understand the beauty that our eyes take in as we stand right at the base of a mountain and we look up and we observe all that that exists above it? Or perhaps we stand on the summit and we look down and we observe all that exists below it. I mean, how much more beautiful... How much more beautiful are scenes like this when we consider the sovereign hand that molds and shapes the hills and the valleys or or gifts the mind of the artist or architect entering into the world that he created in order to give himself that it might be redeemed from sin? How much more beautiful are the scenes and the tastes and the sounds that we take in and that we feel and that we experience when we understand that our king gives of himself fully and completely in order that we might enjoy these things through a redemptive lens. Understanding, right, all the while that we do exist in a sin-cursed and fallen world. And all that we look around and we go, man, this is beautiful. It only increases in beauty on into eternity. It only gets, it only gets better. Wow. Here's another way how this practically works itself, itself out. Yesterday, Courtney and I, uh, we participated in the, uh, in the NIDA walk. Now, what does NIDA stand for? Well, it stands for National Eating Disorders Association. 
And they hosted a, a, a walk yesterday in the park in Atlanta to raise awareness and support for the 30 million people in America who will develop an eating disorder at some point in their lives. I don't know about you, but that number was overwhelming to me. And as we were standing there and all the people began to gather for this walk, it was, there was no doubt that there was a really incredible turnout. A couple hundred people coming together to show their support by participating in this walk. Those who had struggled and been affected by this illness, standing up and speaking out in spite of the nerves and potential shame that still exists. And I said to myself, in light of where we are going this morning and that which we see from Jesus in verse Verse 1, this is beautiful. Right? This reflects beauty because, because the gospel says that Christ at the cross takes all of our guilt and all of our shame and all of our sin upon himself, making our justification by grace through faith obtainable. Here's the point. Right, as we observe the beauty that exists in the world around us, let us, as God's people, enjoy that beauty through the lens of the cross in which we see the most beautiful and the most self-sacrificing act in the course of history displayed and recorded. The, the disciples observed the beauty of the landscape. Little do they know Little do they know that the standard for true beauty would be laid bare before them in just a few days from this point. Only it would, it would be so obscure to them that they would, for the most part, not even be able to watch it. And that's the power. Right? That's the, the power of the cross. Right, Christ takes this offensive scene and he shapes it into something beautiful. Right, the most uh, offensive scene, that which serves as, as foolishness and a stumbling block to many. God takes it and he works it out in a most incredible way to become the standard for all that is beautiful in us. And in this world. Because Christ, upon the cross, takes sinners and he produces, he makes a path to forgiveness possible by way of faith in what he has done and what he is doing and what he will do. And he covers us in his righteousness. Here's the deal. Christ makes us beautiful. Christ makes us, us beautiful by way of his obedience in the sight of God. Upon the cross, as the love and justice of God is put on full display, through, through the death of our king, we see that beauty is not marked with shimmering gold 
as the disciples observe walking out of the city, but it instead is observable by way of selfless sacrifice. It's an altogether different idea and concept than the disciples have been able to understand and wrap their minds around up until this point. This is, this is the idea. This is, this is the idea, beauty through hardship. That we see displayed at the cross. That God's people are going to need going forward. Something that Jesus himself begins alluding to in verse 2. Look at chapter 13 verse 2 with me. He says, do you see these great buildings? There's not going to be one left. (laughs) There's not going to be one stone left. Upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus is speaking towards the ultimate destruction of the temple that is coming in course of history. He's already cleared it out, but it will fall. It'll be gutted and it will be burned to the point that those who set fire to this temple and bring about its destruction physically in this way that Jesus is prophesying towards here in verse 2 would come together with chisels and hammers to break away the stone from the gold that had been melted down into it. It is all going away. It will be destroyed and it will be undone. Jesus prophesied towards that here and that day would take place. Only here we see in the context of this passage, it leads the disciples to ask a super obvious question. Imagine that you had just heard prophecy such as this. This whole thing, that which you guys are observing, is going to be torn down. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be burned. What is the natural question? Well, we see it. Here in verse 4, they ask, when is this going to, when is this going to happen? Right? When? With all the things that you're talking about, when is this going to happen? And what signs can we look for to know that it is coming? And again, we see this as a question that Jesus will answer, only not in the way that they expected or the way that they desired. In fact, we can be fairly sure that much of what Jesus had to say in this scene would go right over their heads. Uh, events that if we observe New Testament church history and the centuries to follow, we see come to pass, as Jesus said that they would. And what we see through this portion, as well as coming portions, is that events like these oftentimes lead people to say, man, surely these events mean the end. Right? The, uh, I mean, we've all heard that before. The end is coming. The end is near. The end is imminent. At which point we see Jesus encourage his disciples to pursue and live in light of sound doctrine. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me here. The call is this. Don't be deceived by the events of the world. When you begin observing chaotic scenes, the tendency is to go, man, the end is surely near. I feel like every couple of years, or maybe maybe it's less than that, maybe it's like every tens of years, right, that there's this, this big push that comes out in which we go, man, all of these events that are recorded in Scripture are happening. The end must indeed be near. 
And how does what Jesus have to say in this passage inform our understanding of what we see in the world around us? Jesus says in verse 5, man, see that no one leads you astray. See that no one diverts you off the path. Verse 6, many will come in my name saying, I am he. And he will lead many astray. And when you hear, listen to what he says here, of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Because these things must take place. But the end is not yet come. The encouragement from Jesus in light of the chaos that we're going to see continue to unfold in this passage is this. Hold to sound doctrine. Right, Hold to that which is true. You're asking me about when these events are to take place. What I'm telling you is that you ought to be most concerned about clinging to what you already know to be true. That which I have spent the last 12 chapters in Mark's timeline telling you about. Right, that I am faithful and that I am good and that I am sovereign and that I rule providentially and powerfully over all of creation. Paul is going to elaborate on this later on in which he points towards and speaks of the preeminence of Christ. Man, hold to what you know. Why? Because the world is broken. The world is broken and it is, it is a, a cursed world. In light of the rebellion of humanity. Now it is a cursed world that Christ is redeeming. That he will redeem and that he will recreate as his people dwell in his presence forever. In bodies and world absent of sin and shame and guilt. But it's going to get crazy. Okay, that's the best way perhaps that we can begin describing what Jesus says here and what he is going to say after is that it is going to get crazy. The world is going is going to look like a wild and incredibly broken place in the midst of it. Do not be deceived, but cling to that which is true. Where do we find that which is true in God's word right here? To hold fast to sound doctrine is to abide in the word of the Lord. It is to know him here. It is to be familiar with that which he has said. To be familiar, I love the way Jacqueline led us into our first song as we began singing this morning. Consider what this says of the character of our God. Let us familiarize ourselves with the character of our God, knowing all that we need to know. We have everything that we need for life and godliness. And so we step back and we go, all right, let's not pound away too hard on the disciples for the question that they ask here. Because we oftentimes ask ourselves that same thing. When is it coming? When is the end coming? What ought we to look for? Man, we would do much better to, to model a posture of John in Revelation chapter 22 in which he says to, to close out written scripture. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen. All right, let that be the place that we reside. Let us, let us cry out corporately and individually, Christ, come and rescue your people. But we cannot become so caught up in the events of this world that we lose our mind and that we lose our doctrine. The world is full of false religions and false Christs which have adopted this very position. 
right? That the church is apostate, that it is broken, that it has fallen. No, it has not. No, it has not. It just simply is not the case. And so let us cling to what we know is true, that which God has given to his people in his word, that he enlightens our hearts and our minds to by way of his spirit. Are we good? Everybody okay? Let's continue on. We see next the assurance of security in verses 8 and 9 and Christ's commitment to mission. And so let's look first at his assurance of security in verses in verse 8 and 9. Beginning in verse 8. What does the fallenness of the world look like and all the crazy events that are to take place as we as God's people, pilgrim people, dwell in this land? Nation will rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes, natural disasters in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. Because we live in a fallen world, right? because we live in a, in a cursed world, we see that there will indeed be wars and rumors of wars. Right? We will see nations raging against one another, natural disasters, earthquakes, and famines. We observe the brokenness of the world around us, and we go, man, what can we do to begin to remedy all that we see taking place? People are fighting everywhere, and we don't need to go far outside of this very location to begin to see it manifesting itself in our own culture. So what is it? Is it more like, like global, uh, social justice efforts that are to bring about ultimate peace and reconciliation among men. No, it's not. We know that to be true, right? Like we can, and we ought to, as the church, we ought to be actively involved in engaging the hurting in this world, those who are experiencing famine, who don't have food and don't have water. The church ought to, as God's people, step into the gap and seek to meet that need. But one thing that we ought to be sure of is that as we do that, we will not put an end to the war. Right, that we won't put an end to the war, and we won't put an end to the rumors of war, and we won't put an end to nation rising against nation. Why? Because our biggest problem, our biggest problem within and without is not the need for more social justice. But the biggest problem is our sinful hearts that are in need of being rescued. Right? Our biggest need is new hearts. Why? Well, because we are often self-centered. Not self-sacrificial. We're oftentimes looking out for what is best in terms of our own interest and not what is best in terms of another's interest. And even if you begin to practice that, we are not guaranteed. In fact, we're guaranteed quite the opposite. Right? The things won't always get better, but in fact, many times will remain totally stagnated or even get worse. Our biggest need is a transformed heart, which informs the mission of Christ's church. As we engage in social efforts, which we ought to, do not hear me say, don't go home and don't say, Kirk lost it today, right? And he said like, man, down with social justice efforts. Like that is not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this, that all of the social justice efforts that the church engages in have to be understood in light of what our greatest actual need is. Forgiveness of sin and new hearts. 
And that these efforts ought to be a result of our understanding of, of the Imago Day residing within people. Our desire to reach out and extend love to those who are, are most negatively impacted by the condition of our world because Christ has been most concerned with our condition. Right? And he has entered into our world in order to redeem us. And so in light of these great truths, his pursuit of us and his call of us and his affection laid upon us, we ought to actively engage in mission from one end of the spectrum to the other in light of this understanding of our greatest need. Jesus says these things have to happen because of the nature of the world that we live in, in a post-Genesis 3 world as a result of man's rebellion against God. And that they are not so much evidence of the coming of the end of the age, but they are a reminder of the fall and our need. And so there we see his assurance of security. We can know that these things are, are true, that in the face of all of these things taking place, man, it continues to build upon itself. Stay with me. We see Christ's commitment to mission in verses 9 through 13. Look with me at verse 9 through 13. Christ says... Hey, things are going to get crazy, right? Verses 8 and 9. 9, here we go. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. You'll be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings. You will do so for what? For my sake, Christ says, to bear witness before them. We do not have to wait very long in the course of New Testament history to see that which Jesus is speaking of here come to pass. Go to the book of Acts. Right, go to the book of, of Acts and consider passages like, I'll turn over there and I'll point it out to you so you can read it later. We won't read it now because we really do need to go on, but you can check it out later on. We, we begin to look in, in passages like Acts 24. In which we see Paul before Felix at Caesarea. He's been taken and imprisoned, and he is giving an account before kings for the sake of Christ, bearing witness to him, what he has done, and what he is doing. Here's the point, verse 10. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. What does Christ call the attention of his people toward? They want to know when is all this going to happen? When are things going to get crazy so that we might know that the end is near? Christ's encouragement is not to worry about the brokenness that you observe in the world all around you as much as you are committed to mission. That's what he says. Here's the focus. Here's the energy. Here is the effort. The gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. Verse 11. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious. What an incredibly challenging, what an incredibly challenging call. Don't be anxious as you stand before kings and governors on my account, Paul imprisoned in Acts 24. Two years in Acts 24, we see Paul imprisoned, just waiting, just waiting to go to Rome. And yet he remains committed and steadfast. 
fast displaying, at least based on what we can see in Acts 24 recorded, the supernatural ability to maintain focus on mission. Christ says, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but, man, the good news for the church, right? That it is not you who speaks, but, in fact, the Holy Spirit. Through the birth of the church and its advancement, Throughout the world, we see time and time again the faithfulness of God to the fulfillment of the word of the Son. We, we know that advancement, gospel advancement is sure. And that in spite of any and every difficulty, that the message of God will go forth. He is committed to it. Why is the mission sure to succeed? Is it because of our own strength? Is it because of our own diligence and our own commitment? No, it's not. But it's because of Christ's commitment to the advancement of his church and the proclamation of the gospel to where we can go back and we can say, man, if we are of a faith system that says that the church is apostate and therefore we need to have something new, no, we don't. Right? The word ensures and promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against the mission of God. And so we learn some super practical points pertaining to mission through these verses. What do we learn? Man, it will be hard. Mission is hard, okay? Don't be deceived. Don't buy the lie, because if you do, here's what happens. If you buy the lie that engaging in gospel ministry and gospel mission is to be an eternal cakewalk, then when you encounter difficulty, what do you do? You give up, right? Like you give up, you throw your hands in the air, and you say, no, this is simply, this is simply not what I signed on for. And so let us, as the church... Hear and know that commitment to the mission of Christ will require the strength of the Spirit within us in order that in the midst of difficulty and trial that we might remain faithful. We can remain faithful in the face of hardship. Why? Here it is. This is it. This is pivotal. This is how the gospel informs this idea. Because Christ has proven himself faithful. We can be faithful to the Christian mission in some of the most challenging contexts in culture and the world because Christ is faithful. Because Christ is faithful. We see that the mission will be hard. But we see that it will also be thorough. That it will be thorough. That it will go forth unto the nations. We see that it requires the Spirit's work. We've said this before. I love the quote that David Platt has used many times. Right, That we can do a lot of things. We can do a lot of things without God. But we cannot do the things of God without God. Now theologically, right, we step back and we say, okay, we, we understand what he's saying. The emphasis being on that final point. 
that it requires the Spirit's work in order for us to be actively engaged in mission, taking this news to the nations in the face of difficulty and trial. God is committed. God is committed to his mission and its fulfillment through the work of the Spirit and the church. And so there are challenges. There are are many challenges for us in light of what we observe in this passage. What are a few? Well, here's a few that I, that I wrote down, and this is not an exhaustive list. And so, again, if you're taking notes and you find others, I would encourage you to share those with me. We must be reliant. We must be reliant. We must be reliant on God to be actively engaged in mission. We must be obedient. Right? We must be obedient in light of the great love of God displayed through Christ. We must be informed. We have to know. Right? We have to know what we believe. We have to know what we believe. We have to be rooted in sound doctrine. We have to be aware. What is the condition of the culture around us? We see again and again throughout the book of Acts, Paul reasoning with the culture around him from the scriptures. Why? How can he do that? Well, because he's aware. He knows what he believes. He knows what God has said. And he's aware of where the people are. And so as we engage in mission, we too need to be rooted in these, in these areas. And then finally, again, and it's not an exhaustive list. We have to be content. We have to be content. Now, now here's the tendency for the church. Our tendency is to become content in complacency. Right? Our, our, our tendency is to become content exactly where we are with everything that's going on as it is and to just, and to just sit there. Right? What we see in light of this passage is that we must be content with a life full of uncertainty, banking everything that we are on one certainty, right? That while life is filled with uncertainty, we can be most assured of one thing, and that is this, that our king is good, right? And that that by way of his torn flesh, we are received into fellowship with God. And that he is committed to Christian mission. Right? That, that he is leading the way. That he goes before us. Right? And that he goes in us, empowering us to engage the culture around us with the most, the most good news that, that anyone could bring to a people. Right? That which is better news than anything else. We must be content at times with uncertainty. We must be content at times with hardship. We must be content at times with difficulty. But let us ask this question. Right? Is that which we know, does that which we know produce within us a sense of contentment, even if if uncertainty rules in every other area. Challenging. We see in verse 12, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. Man, the sinfulness of sin, 
right? The evil of, of sin. And you will be, Jesus says, hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end, what does Jesus say? Will be saved. To which we say this, that Christ is the source of our endurance and salvation. Why? How? Well, because he has endured, right? This is Christ here. This points to him. He is the faithful one. He is the one who has run the race with endurance. And so because of his endurance as our source of endurance and salvation, we might begin to follow him into the path of uncertainty. Does that make sense? And we can begin to do this because Christ fulfills that which he calls his people toward here in verse 12. We see that Christ is the source of our endurance and our salvation. We can endure because Christ had endured. As we sang in the beginning, we will reach the end and we will reach the end by what? By grace and grace alone. Grace sustains us. Right, grace sustains us and it keeps us. We are reminded that Christ is the truer and better temple through this passage. God tabernacling with men, dwelling with men. This temple torn down and in three days built back up again. The temple in all of its beauty could not make the people beautiful. But Christ can. Christ can make us beautiful in the eyes of our Father, saving us, reconciling us, paying our penalty and taking upon himself God's wrath due our sin. Christ makes us beautiful. He justifies us. He cleanses us from unrighteousness. He sanctifies us by the Spirit, shaping us into his image. In the face of war and hostility and division in the world. And one day, one day he will glorify us. One day he will glorify us. And so we ask ourselves, is that enough? Right, is is that enough for us? Are we content with that? Right? Are we content with that? Does this reality encourage us into certain difficulty? The church has never been spared difficulty. Okay? And so we as God's people can expect difficulty. Is this news enough to produce contentment in us in order to engage in this mission in the face of what is certain to come, knowing that there is a day that is set in which we are in the presence of the Lord, worshiping Him in a glorified condition. Better than we've ever been. Is that enough? Is that enough for us? Let's pray.